Here we go. This is Andy Brewer with Northwest AHEC and another episode of our Healthcare Insights podcast. And I have the pleasure to introduce my guest today, Dr. Lisa Cassidy-Vu, who is the, let me get my paper here, Interim Program Director for Residency Training at Wake Forest School of Medicine, Family and Community Medicine, and is also Assistant Professor in Family Medicine. So welcome. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start out just by asking uh, what what challenges do you have in a woman in medicine and and a fan you know your mother and you've got all this stuff going on your interim director um tell me a little bit about your day and how, how you manage to be successful in what you do oh wow that's a that's a good question so managing the day is definitely a challenge i think that's probably true for any parent who's working um, or even who's not working it means probably not as much sleep as i'd like to get So my day looks like, you know, usually I'll get up. I try to get a little of me time in, right, and and do a little exercise, and then usually do a little work before I go to work, get the kids ready if it's school time, and then uh, hopefully not do anything during the summer because it's summertime, (laughs) uh, which is great. Then head in. And so my day is a balance um, of residency issues, which come up all the time. You know, we kind of have a calendar throughout the year of what's required in residency programs, getting residents ready to graduate right now is our is our big challenge and then balance that with clinic work and so I see um, a pretty large patient panel for a faculty member who only has clinic three days a week and then kind of all the challenges that go into that right we have labs that come back to us and messages from patients that come back to us and our nurses that are calling us right and so it's it's kind of a juggle throughout the day and I try to block out time for both and uh, try to be successful I guess well good answer <laughs> I mean we all we all have our routines that get us through um, family and community medicine that's primary care and we always hear that there's a dearth of primary care physicians how do you attract and retain and promote family medicine and primary care, especially in rural areas. And, you know, Winston-Salem's fairly metropolitan, but we do cover a uh, northwest section of North Carolina, which has a lot of rural counties. How, how, do, how do you attract those residents, and what do you hear from them as far as their excitement level of, of practicing or their willingness to go out in those areas? Actually, that is one of the, like, top questions I get during our interview season when med students come in to apply for our residency program is, what, what do you have that can help me be a rural physician if that's something I want to do, which is wonderful, right, because we definitely need rural physicians. I think then after three years of residency, we don't tend to get as many residents into rural medicine as we want. But <clears throat> we do have rural rotations in our in our three years um, at Family Medicine. I think right now we're kind of trying to focus more on kind of health disparities in Winston Salem, and so we're we're looking at a at a track for for kind of the underserved, not necessarily rural, but more kind of socioeconomic and kind of all the struggles that that those patients find, because that's what we see mostly, right, in our practice. Mm-hmm. So the residents that do come in the program, what, is there anything you noticed over the years of, of working with them, the excitement level or or, or anxiety of, of practicing in the rural areas? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a challenge, right, especially if you're growing up, um, you know, in kind of a more a suburban or urban area, you know, just thinking about what, what will I spend my time doing, right, if there's not local conveniences, right, like... Costco and, you know, is there Mm -hmm. a mall to shop in? I mean, granted, we have electronics now, right? We can buy anything on Amazon that we want. But, you know, what will they do for their family and what will they do socially? You know, there's all these questions that residents tend to have. I think that a lot of them 
enjoy doing their rural rotations and experiences. We get really good feedback from them, but then trying to actually get them to, you know, practice and live in the area is more of a challenge. Yeah, I asked Dr. Freischlag the same question, and and the show Northern Exposure came to mind. I couldn't remember (laughs) the name, so I wanted to plug that. Uh, Now, maybe watch more episodes Should I admit that that. I've never watched it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, but that that showed, you know, there was a doctor who went up to rural Alaska and practiced medicine and just all the characters and the, you know, connections that, that, that he would make there and and the issues that affect a rural area, especially as isolated as somewhere in Alaska. So yeah. I think that's a good good primer for any resident who is like, what am I going to do out there in the bush? Just so throw them out to Alaska. <laughs> Funny enough, we actually had a resident go to Alaska to do um, an elective. And wow, her conference when she you know, came back and presented what her experience was, was incredible. I mean, she had no other physicians around and she was a third year resident right and kind of did telemedicine with a local quote-unquote local attending you know miles and miles away but wow the stuff she saw was just amazing just speaking of telemedicine tell me what kind of telemedicine you guys are doing now so we do have some capability in our office to do telemedicine I will say I've never actually done a televisit with a patient and I think a lot of the problems with that is getting insurance to to cover that. Whereas if a patient comes in, right, they have a copay and they can see me face to face or message me electronically. Um, so I think m- more of the the drawback to patients is they're going to have to pay for that. So yeah, I don't have a ton of experience in that. I, I get certainly a lot of messages and requests via our electronic record. Yeah, I was going to ask you, the patient portal is a fairly recent phenomenon, and, and I, I certainly use it a lot. So <laughs> how much of your day com- is spent answering questions fr- through the patient portals? That's a that's a, a, a near and dear question to my heart for sure, because it really does take up a lot of time. And there's probably departments and institutions out there that give faculty dedicated time to address what we call our in-basket. Unfortunately, we just don't have that time in my program. And so really, when I'm answering patient messages, it's kind of like, do I take away from my residency administrative time? Do I do it like this morning at 530 in the morning? (laughs) Do I do it at the end of the day, right? I mean, sometimes you're really lucky and you can get in a few messages between patients, but that's kind of the rare rarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like that would be a time suck. And how do you capture that as far as your accountability and stuff like that? And I see that also. I mean, I've I've kind of tinkered around with chatbots and, and some pseudo AI stuff. And I think that AI could be a really big part of getting back in a real timely way to patients who have questions and yeah. being able to parse that and try to figure out what it is they're actually asking in the natural language reply and, and without feeling like it's cold and it's a robot answering them. So. Right. I always feel like, gosh, is the patient going to take my words the wrong way, right? Because obviously I feel like I'm compassionate and trying to help, but when it's just a couple sentences, right, mm-hmm. you can't feel the emotion behind it. I would love to see, you know, one day could half of my clinic be just patients know between one and three or you know three and five or whatever time it is during the day they can like get me right then it's a quick visit it's five minutes 
they don't have to pay a lot. Insurance kind of helps out. We get compensated. It seems like a win-win. I mean, we don't always have to actually examine a patient, right? A lot of it's mental health or, you know, I have a rash, but they can show me their arm right on the camera <laughs> or, you know, something, or I have a cold, right? Or, you know, all these things that we can do without really touching them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And it's convenient for patients, right? Because maybe they're at work and they can just call in really quick and say, oh my gosh, I can't get this to stop you know, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, well, I, I think that the engagement part is is good there. You know, we always hear the complaints that now when a patient actually comes in to the clinic and sits down with you, all they see is your silhouette typing at the keyboard. <laughs> um, yeah, that I, is unfortunate. So how, how do you, what kind of things that you do personally and train your residents to do to engage with the patients, even though that's a requirement to click through those boxes? Right, yeah, it is, you know, that is probably other than the patient advice requests that happen at night, not being able just to sit there with the patient is definitely what I think is the biggest drawback to our electronic record. And I will say a lot of times, you know, especially if it's something like, you know, acute mental health issue, I'm not looking at the computer at all. I'm not typing. I'm not clicking. And that means, you know, once I'm done, and it probably is going to be a really drawn out visit, which puts me behind for the rest of the patients, that means I have to go back and figure out that note and all the clicky boxes afterwards, right? And so what I often do in those visits is I'll just use, um, we call it Dragon, so the um, dictaphone that's connected to our electronic records. I'll just quickly kind of chat out a a note when the patient's gone. Mm -hmm. So speech-to-text kind of thing. Yeah, that that seems to be helpful. I remember getting an eye exam years ago. I mean, this is 25 years ago, and they were using speech-to-text back then, yeah, which I thought That's advanced. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, it's been around a while. I I just think it's only now a lot of these technologies are coming uh, together to, and people are learning how to use them effectively. I mean, we've had tools for a long time that, you know, we we try to use and they fail, and, you know, I guess the lesson there is to fail fast and figure out how (laughs) to improve it. I guess we could make the argument that doctors are the only people left carrying pagers around, right? Yeah, well, I noticed that. I went and picked up an iPad at the at the mobile office, and there was a whole case of pagers getting ready to be distributed, I guess, to new residents. And I was like, wow, they, what still, are they, doing? they right. still use these things. Yeah, it's pretty archaic. Yeah, but it's still effective, you know, and I think that it's without distraction. It's a single-purpose device, and yeah. I, I think there's room for that still. Other technologies that you use in, in your day-to-day life that you've seen as improvements or hindrance? Yeah, I mean, I think overall technology is helpful in medicine. The fact that I can get on links on our EMR to medical sources, I mean, you know, in family and certainly across the board, but, you know, in family medicine, we take care of anything that walks in, right? And I am not going to know the answer to a lot of stuff, especially if I don't see it all the time, right? And so just having that capability of, oh, I can click either the patient's still there with me and I'm like, well, let's look it up together. Or, no, I've never prescribed that medication for you. Let's look up together what contraindications or, you know, interactions with some of your other meds are. And I I don't think patients think lesser of me for doing that. I think they appreciate the fact that I can walk through things with with them. Kind of on the same technology thread, when you were in med school, tell me about... There was no clicky boxes. (laughs) (laughs) But did they spend more time with patient interaction then? I mean, or or what's changed in that regard? Because we do have all this technology needs and requirements to capture the things that you're doing, and I think that's important. But there's also that face-to-face, the motivational interviewing, the SBIRT, and all those models that... You know, somehow you got to find the time to do. 
Right. Absolutely. I mean, and, and especially in primary care and in family medicine, we still really stress that, right? I think we're the only branch of, medica- of medicine that, st- that requires our patient or our residents to have um, videotaping interactions with patients and, you know, someone precepting them live, right? It's not just that the resident's coming out and telling us. We actually watch them um, interact with patients. So I don't know other specialties that do that, but certainly we still think that's important because we want our residents to be able to handle patient care, right? I mean, that's a huge aspect. You want to relate to your primary care physician, right? To answer the question, the changes from what I trained, I mean, we were still on paper, right? I, I mean, I'm not even that old. Make sure everyone knows that. I'm not that <laughs> old. Uh, but yeah, I mean, our charting was circle some answers on a piece of paper and write a quick plan and then you sign it and most of the time we couldn't read (laughs) what people wrote right which you could argue is not good for patient safety at all and certainly we couldn't like pull up another hospital record right and that's super important to care but one we were able to just chit chat with our patients which is great and two like we were done at the end of the day right and I think talk about burnout and wellness and there's all these buzzwords around you know resident and physician care and safety and we I don't think we talked about that 20 years ago when I was in training and and is that directly connected to the electronic record and technology I I'm sure part of it is right I mean we're all attached to these little devices that I have you know sitting next to me and so yeah I think it has taken away from mostly from their well-being I think they're still giving great patient care I think they're just doing it outside of work hours now which is never our goal right we stress to the residents like you need to be done when the work day's over but mm-hmm. realistically if their faculty members are working all night they're working all night right I mean yeah I, th- I think that that's something that we've not realized with technology you know it's supposed to give us four day week work work weeks and <laughs> that would and, be great can you sign me up for that <laughs> tell my chair <laughs> I mean but seriously I mean we're supposed to realize more efficiency through use of electronics and it seems like we're doing more but we're doing more, you right. know, we're, we're, we're doing our jobs and then some because we, we have these capabilities to multitask or to, you know, have a lot of things moving in parallel. So has that brought about this huge uh, rise in compassion fatigue and, and provider burnout? Yeah, who, who knows? But, yeah, it seems yeah. like it seems like we should be reaping the benefits. Right. Yeah. I would definitely argue there is a connection for sure. Now, tell me about the types of things that in residency training, what types of uh, things do you include with those two topics of of burnout and fatigue? Our institution has a required curriculum, basically, that residents need to go through about fatigue um, and burnout. And obviously, it's, it's, it's a big deal, right? We definitely hear of residents taking their lives, right? I mean, that is not something we play with at all. And in our department, we have an advisor for each resident. We have um, at least twice monthly kind of resident wellness sessions with their class. And that involves our behavioralist and often a faculty member just to kind of talk through, man, this is what's going on with me. This is what my rotation's like. And then also kind of gives, you know, some help to, you know, residents who haven't done their rotation, like, wow, this is what you should watch for. This is when I know I'm hitting my limit. This is who I turn to. And, uh, and so we, we definitely try to make sure the residents are, are handling things well. And, you know, we ask them in their advisor meetings, you know, what are you doing outside of work? You know, yeah. is there anything we can help you to, to adjust the area, right? Like, do you know where the nearest grocery store is or do you have a dentist, right? Like all these things mm-hmm. that are important to anybody. Yeah, the work-life balance right. I think is important, especially in healthcare. 
let's switch to some of the health, other health issues. Um, I've read all these statistics that talk about the rise in ADHD diagnosis, for oh, example. Yeah. What, <clears throat> any thoughts on what, what you see, what you've experienced in the clinic, and, and what do you think maybe some causal factors of that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. ADHD has definitely been around in med school. And again, I'm not that old, but, uh, (laughs) you know, in med school, we certainly learned about it and saw patients with it. I remember working with a psychiatrist, and that's really all she treated were children with ADHD. So I don't think it's a new phenomenon. I think maybe the adult ADHD part is is a little more newer than than the child one. And I don't know if we thought just kids outgrew it or or what, or we were able to kind of, maybe we diagnosed them as kids and and then they kind of just struggled with it through adulthood, whereas now maybe we're seeing it more just in adulthood because of all the demands of of the 21st century or whatnot. But I think the adult ADHD part is, is a little bit of a newer phenomenon. Why all of that is, I think there's it's definitely multifactorial. I certainly do think there is a role of technology since we're on that subject. With ADHD, you know, the Academy of Pediatrics and the Academy of Family Medicine have both put out statements about how much screen time children should have. And I think we're actually seeing less TV screen time, but I think that's being compensated, not a good way to compensate, but by other means of technology, right? I mean, I just kicked my son off his Xbox this morning, right? Honey, Mm. you shouldn't wake up and just go to your (laughs) video game. Despite the fact that we have like internet limits on his devices, somehow he finds a way to work around that. (laughs) And so, yeah, you know, you've got video games and you've got handheld devices. I mean, there's so many things that just inundate our kids with artificial stimulation, stimulation, right? Like we, I didn't have, you know, I had a TV growing up, sure, but like I'd rather go out and play with my friends, whereas now they play with their friends, but they're on a device. Right, right. right. Yeah, that's a huge thing. Um, The overstimulation, but less physically active, I think is, is a big thing. And we'll get into some of those things, but let me stay on ADHD for a second. You know, in pain uh, for a while, everyone was prescribing opioids and perhaps op- over-prescribing yes. them. And now the a lot of emphasis is on alternative therapies for pain. And are there, it seemed like there was a rush to prescribe for ADHD. Are, are there alternatives for, for non-medication alternatives for ADHD? Absolutely. In fact, I usually tell parents bef- either we're just making diagnosis with their children or, you know, even before diagnosis, you know, there's ways to like maybe not prevent ADHD, but kind of help kids compensate, right? So being active, we know that kids with ADD, if they are in sports or even just running around and kind of wearing themselves out at the end of the day, they're going to focus better on their schoolwork, right? Parent and guardian interaction, I mean, I think that means a ton, right? With language development and attention, I think, you know, just having relationships with your kids, which unfortunately, you know, when you're a working parent Mm -hmm. and all the things we have to juggle, I mean, it it definitely takes away from our interactions with our kids. So I think that's super important. I think diet definitely plays a role, but, you know, I have a nutrition background, so um, I tend to think nutrition is involved in everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there there are medications that aren't stimulants. If you do go down the pharmacology route, where I often try to recommend those first and, you know, hopefully you do great on it. And if you don't, 
then you know then we talk about stimulants down the road. But I kind of leave stimulants for the for the end, right? I mean, mm. there's side effects to everything. We worry about growth. We worry about blood pressure. We worry about their heart rate, right? We worry about their sleep, which is super critical. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned nutrition, and, and at North Coast Tech, we've partnered with Brenner Fit to do those culinary medicine classes, which is to train healthcare providers the basics of healthy food prep and acquisition and and, and all that um, and strategies to extend the budget and all that so they can tell their parents have you number one have you been through our culinary medicine and number two how do you counsel or what do you counsel your patients with and and especially their families because kids don't necessarily have have the the power to control that right so tell me a little bit about nutrition in your practice because food is medicine food is totally medicine yeah so i actually did do the um the ahec sponsored culinary medicine uh class which i completely enjoyed and i still want to get out to uh the west coast and take Take the full course. I've been to the Brenner Fit Kitchen. It's a um, very nice facility. I, I definitely enjoyed being there. I actually do some Cooking Matters group visits with pregnant women, which has been delightful. I have a bunch of med students and APP students that kind of help me with that. And we've partnered with Maya Angelou to do that. And we're actually looking at the Brenner Fit Kitchen for our next group. So that's great. Thank you so much for having it available for. <laughs> but yeah, I think, gosh, man, again, it's it's our lifestyles, right? Like mm-hmm. Americans work way too much. We don't take breaks. We don't use our vacation time, right? We, I mean, my goodness, you look at other developed worlds and they do things so differently. And not that their health rates are perfect, but ours are so terrible for the amount of money we spend in healthcare, right? Like we shouldn't have these rates of obesity and diabetes and everything else that we have when we spend so much on healthcare. But yeah, I think it boils down to lifestyle. I mean, when you're a busy parent, you're hitting McDonald's, right? You're hitting Burger King, but you just don't have the time to make food. And so a lot of what I talk to with parents is just like, let's just try. You don't have to make gourmet meals, right? Let's just try to get some more fruits and vegetables in your diet. And let's try to prep, right? You have Sundays or you have Saturdays. There's some day during the week, hopefully, where you're not working, right? Let's just take a couple hours, prep your meals for the week. And again, it doesn't have to be, you know, Mm -hmm. a five-star restaurant meal. But Give your kids something that's real, right? I always talk about real food, mm-hmm. where there's not a bunch of processed stuff. There's not a bunch of simple carbs. Mm-hmm. It's just what our grandparents would have yeah. made for us, right? Because they didn't have to work like we do. Five ingredients or less. That's right. That's right. It's Michael Pollan, right? Mm-hmm. Eat real food, not too much. Mostly fruits and vegetables. Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, I, I've suffered that. I'm, I'm a real big into nutrition and cooking and I love to cook and I love to go to the farmer's market and get all that stuff and and of course we just went through May and I have four young kids and all of them in school so like a taxi cab driver right yeah so not (laughs) only that but just the getting them for from activities to where they need to be and then all of a sudden it's 8 9 o'clock and you Mm -hmm. haven't even prepared food yet and you're not even really hungry at that time so it is a definitely a lifestyle issue and May was not the healthiest month right. for us, and it's yeah. the most active, it seems. So, that, you know, there's there's definitely a balance we have to achieve there, and, and I don't know how we get that back in our ethos of we really need at least a vegetable for every meal or Absolutely. a piece of fruit or something. I completely agree. And, you know, there's – and I talked to in, the, in our group visits, you know, when we have a lot – that's another thing, right? I don't have a ton of time with patients to just talk about nutrition, and sometimes it means I bring them in just to talk about that, which is unfortunate for them because they have an, a copay and they have to drive in, and, and I hate to make our, our patients work harder than they, than they need to, but um, – 
you know, sometimes you have to. But the nice thing with our group visits is I have the time. And so I have definitely sat down with these moms and like, let's talk about how to hide vegetables in food, right? Like yeah. if you need to, there are cookbooks out there that mm. tell you how to put zucchini in brownies, right? And yeah. and they actually taste really good. And, you know, is it bad that we're tricking our kids? I don't I don't know. Like you're, they're still getting the veggies. And if they like it, great. And then maybe one day you can say, this is the actual zucchini that I put in that brownie that you really love. Let's try just sautéing it and see if you like it, right? Like, there's baby steps. So, yeah, I don't think we should, like, trick our kids completely, but let's be honest. We talk about Santa Claus, right? Mm-hmm. And we all know that he's <laughs> may or may not be real. But um, How yeah. dare you? I know, right. <laughs> and I, I still come back to this thing. How do we incorporate that in our culture is, is getting food to be the most important thing. I mean, there, there's that saying, you know, do you think eating healthy is expensive? Have you priced cancer lately? Right. You know, I mean, it's the same thing with cigarettes, right? Like, well, yeah, I mean, it's, five bucks a pack. it's like you're going to either pay up front with your time and money or you're going to pay on the back end with right. your time and money and your health, which is really what is it? What do we the, the number one asset we all have is our health and our time. Yeah. And, and, and that's something that I try to uh, live and be an example for my kids. And, and they get it. Uh, it's just they also, you know, I feel like a failure sometimes. Like last night, I didn't pick up my son from football workouts till after eight and he was starving and I was like, I'm not cooking. And we went through Chick-fil-A. Yeah. But, you know, at least Chick-fil-A, I mean, it's chicken, right? It's definitely not. And that's the other thing I tell parents. Like, you know, if you have a choice of French fries versus something that probably is real or at least Mm -hmm. appears to be real. Yeah. (laughs) We can't always be certain. I mean, pick that option, right? I mean, granted, fast food is definitely higher in sodium, right? Mm -hmm. Higher in calories, greasier. But there are some, I mean, I let my kids eat at Chick-fil-A, right? You can get a fruit bowl instead of fries. Right. Or, you know, if they like little salads, you can get a little salad, right? So, I mean, it it all depends on what you actually pick there. I don't yeah. think we should feel guilty, though. I mean, our kids do activities. Yeah, right? I mean, I guess I feel guilty because they know that I'm, I'm... That you're big on nutrition. Well, and then I'm bailing. I'm like, yeah, I'm being lazy because I'm taking you through it. But actually, I'm just being time efficient. And my strategy for that, for those listening, is is... Don't get the meal deal with the soda and the fries. Get two, <laughs> definitely two, avoid the two, soda. <laughs> two, two sandwiches or whatever, and just get, stick, stick with the protein and the right. and the and the the real calories, not not the empty. Don't calories. get the frosty if you go to McDonald's. Stay right? away from the sugar sweetened right. beverages. It really is all about choices, right? Avoid the sides that aren't good for you. Avoid the drinks at all costs. I mean, if you can just get water at home because you're taking the food to go, right? Like mm-hmm. drink water at home or, you know, milk, whatever it is that you want to drink. Avoid the juices. Avoid the sodas. Mm-hmm. I mean, do what you can when it's 8 o'clock at night. You don't want them to eat right before bed either, right? Mm-hmm. That's not going to be good for their stomachs. Similar thread, um, health extenders. This is one that I think is valuable. Um, you know, there is still the uh, need for patients to have that one-on-one with their physician, but these don't, you know, that time's very limited and and very rare. Tell me a little bit about how you see uh, health extenders. You know, we have the Faith Health Program that goes out in the community. We have health coaches. We have Mm -hmm. life coaches. We have all these coaching um, extenders that don't really have the credentials for health care, but they are most of their message is involving health. Yeah. Um, how are you, how are you seeing those being effective in the community? Yeah, I think they are absolutely critical. The, the one nice thing in our department, kind of along the mental health lines, is our behavioral team that we have, which 
man, I don't know how we would, I don't know how we did function when they weren't around because it's, it's kind of a newer thing in our, in our program, but just to have someone there that can, I mean, they're an asset, right? I'm treating someone for depression and it's, you know, kind of fallen off and she or he is doing not great. Man, I've got someone right here that can talk to you and they've got resources for you and, you know, it's so valuable. Our, our care manager at work, you know, I've got a geriatric patient who needs meals on wheels or, you know, because they're either going hungry or someone's bringing them, you know, french fries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, man, I just completely value that. And I wish we had more of it in the in the community for sure. Well, is there any effort uh, in medicine to create a bigger umbrella, I guess you could say? I mean, you know, there is the way we value MDs, you know, we they've put in the work, they've achieved, those letters at the end of your name are valuable, and we, we respect that, and I think that, that that's earned and, and necessary. But is there a way we could create a, a, a smaller credential, like, I mean, for like a CNA level, but some a more empowered CNA, you know, they know basic healthcare things, and they could actually consult with people. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they were trained in motivational interviewing and and all the techniques just to do that base level filtering and provide some resources and information. I, I wish that would be wonderful. I mean I you know what I see in my staff is that they, they do have to kind of go on to get that next degree, right? We have a CMA who just left to to go get her NP degree, right? And and we've had CMAs get their social work degree, depending on what they like to do. I would love to see a way for for it to be easier and not have to to get those letters, but I um I I, I don't know how how that would work. I think it would probably be financially a benefit to everyone, right? Mm-hmm. To the patient for sure, because they wouldn't have to pay for that the cost of the letters at the end of your name, right? Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know if I have an answer to that, but it well, sounds I great. I think the letters are. I mean, it's very important because it tells the world that you've been through rigorous training and rightly so i mean it's very very uh measured and and earned i guess is is the thing and and what i see a need for is to create some sort of officially recognized like i went through the health coach mm-hmm. certification training and i i didn't complete it because i'm not a very good health coach evidently and i think <laughs> it'd be great well <laughs> i mean I, I need to work on my listening skills for sure but it, it, it it's not as easy as people think i mean just sitting here having these conversations isn't as easy because you've got to be an active listener you got to be authentic and you've got to not want to correct people. I mean, that's, I've talked about it before, it's that writing reflex. And we yeah. immediately pick up on, as soon as someone says the problem or the behavior, we, we throw out the intention and we focus on just the behavior. This is a bad behavior. I need to correct that. And that's not the way you get people to change. And I think if there was some type of community college program or even credential even high school kids could get that would focus on nutrition mental health I mean mental health is just such a huge one when when health coaching a lot of that is just to get people to inspire themselves Mm -hmm. to do healthier behaviors and lifestyle modification and I think to provide a conversation for them to find meaning and purpose I think that's the big things that we don't focus on Um, just to diagnose people and find a treatment for them. You know, a lot of people are missing 
meaning and purpose, which is the foundation for everything. And that's achieved through what? Social connection and those types of things. So, you know, I know prescribing, you know, going out into the community and and meeting people is is hard to do. I mean, I just said a lot of stuff there, but (laughs) if you want to react to it or respond. Well, I think of you, we had a teacher at my children's school who, who did just leave to go get her lifestyle coaching degree and again it's a it's a degree quote-unquote degree right Mm -hmm. and and I don't know what the letters are after her name but you know even to do that she still had to get some degree and so Mm -hmm. I I don't know how much time commitment those kind of things nor how much they cost but um yeah I think kind of what you said like people want to see that you are a specialist in whatever it is that you're doing Mm -hmm. right and so you know, even down to an, a nutrition degree. You know, I have a quote-unquote postgraduate degree in in nutrition, but I'm not a registered dietitian, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I couldn't bill as a registered dietitian. But I can certainly coach my patients on nutrition in the office, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, give them a physician's bill, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> which is probably way more expensive. Although insurance covers that, right? Yeah, I don't know if I'm answering the question exactly, but I think. I think especially in America, we demand to see people's credentials, right? I don't mm-hmm. want to take it just kind of like what you said. I can tell you what I think you need, but if I'm not asking you, you know, are you able to meet this? You mm-hmm. know, what are the barriers? Then they're going to, I'm setting them up for failure, right? And I think that in America, patients and people, you don't have to be a patient, demand like you need to be an expert to tell me what mm-hmm. to do because I don't want you to tell me what to do anyway, right? And yeah. so if you're not an expert, I'm really yeah, not going to listen to you, right? Um, and, but I think you made a really good point. Like we need to meet people where they are. And we, you know, we hound in residency programs, right? Like this is how you do that. But it's something I don't even know if you can really teach, right? It's like you can't really teach compassion, right? You just mm-hmm. need to be a compassionate person. I think if you go into medicine or really most fields, like you have to have some degree mm-hmm. of compassion. And so, yeah, just meeting people where they are is super important. So, yeah, if we could get someone out in the community to do that without some specialized degree, that's great. You know, I, I think we look to healthcare as as the answer for a lot of these things because, number one, every, anyone going into healthcare discipline by default has some empathy or some compassion. I hope so. or, yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not just about I need, I need to get a better a paycheck. paycheck. There's a better way to make money than yeah. going into medicine. Let me tell you. <laughs> And and there is a, a trend to send nursing nurses to healthcare mm-hmm. health coaching classes because they can do group visits now and get mm-hmm. get reimbursed for that. So that's that's a good extender. Um, but yeah, getting people to be experts in listening and coaching and and the more of that we can do before they have to go see a physician because yeah. I see the physician as yeah they we hold them in high regard because they're very you know, well-trained and then use them for, well, well visits when you want to see them every couple of years, but also like acute, really serious, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you know, serious things is when we really need that expert um, level thing. I don't necessarily think we need that at, at that, oh, I'm just, I'm feeling down and blue and I need to go see my doctor. You know, because I I think a lot of people would argue against what you just said. Well, for better or worse. I mean, I, definitely have people who again use our electronic record to say i'm not doing well i need to see you Mm -hmm. you know and they're not stopping at their behavioralist right they're they're coming to me like Mm -hmm. first and and that's that's okay i mean i would love because i only have so much of me yeah and so to have someone to back me up yeah like what you're mentioning would be great 
Well, I think a lot of people want someone that has the power of the prescription pad, too, you know, yeah. and just give me a pill. I need to feel better. Right. And then you have to go back to what we were talking about, right? Like, it's not just the pill, right? Mm-hmm. It's lifestyle. It's, yeah, you know, you just... getting out. You know, so many people, like, I ask this all the time. Well, what about retirement? Or what about quitting? Or what about finding a new job? And, like, and I get it. It's hard to find a new line of work. It's hard to find a job. But if you are so unhappy with what you're doing, there's no pill I can give you, right? You mm-hmm. could you could take up exercising and eating right, and I can give you medicine. But, I mean, if at the end of the day you hate what you're doing, mm-hmm. I can't fix that, right? Right. Like, right. Um, That's, yeah, people decide to stay in prison right. a lot of times. Which is so sad. Again, I think it all goes down to, like, Americans are killing ourselves. Why Why do we have to, as a nation, be like this? I mean, it just yeah. seems like, and granted, the grass is always greener somewhere else, right? But I just feel like, as a country, we are hurting our people. Well, we glorify busy, and I think that's part of the uh, infinite growth paradigm that you know we subscribe to right. in the West. And it works for a lot of people. I mean, we raise people out of poverty every day Absolutely. for the yep. economic growth that's going on. But yet, a lot of those people get trapped into that paycheck cycle yep. and in meaningless jobs. And, yeah. and you're going to feel guilty, right, mm-hmm. if you don't do X, Y, Z. Like, yeah. Why do we put that on people? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's back to the ethos. You know, what what is what do we value most? Is it to look good to others because we, we, we're gainfully employed? Or is it do we want to value our health and our time? Right. And, and, and then we have to put it on social media, right, to yeah. make it look like we are doing so great. Yeah, the highlights right. of our lives. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's another thing. I, I wonder if you've seen any increase. I mean, we talked about ADHD and, mm-hmm. and that increase. Um, but mental health in general, I mean, I, I think this social media has created, created an isolation chamber for all of us. And, and we yeah. see the highlights of everyone's life. But that's just the highlights, and we think, oh, we're missing out because we don't yeah, have. Yeah, why these didn't highlights. I go on a cruise this year? Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's it's good and bad. I think one, we spend way too much time on it, and I personally feel way better when I don't check anything for for days, which is kind of what I'm now doing because I don't have time. But mm-hmm. <laughs> so the the bad is, I think exactly exactly what you said, right? Like, oh, my friend just went to yada yada, or you know, I just wished a friend happy mm-hmm. birthday yesterday, and I'm like. Oh, look at how beautiful her girls are. And, you know, they're all, you know, young adults and doing great. I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. But, like, you know, if I wasn't okay where I am, Mm -hmm. you know, or if my kid failed, you know, fifth grade or whatever it is going on in my life, well, that's going to make me feel worse, right? But Mm -hmm. it doesn't say that her husband's an alcoholic, right? But he is. You know, like, there's all these hidden things that you don't know. And nobody's going to put on Facebook that my husband's an alcoholic, right? Yeah. Unless they're, you know, at the point where they have to publicize it because they're losing their mind and they need some support. Yeah. And yeah. so that's kind of where the the good is, right? I think one is especially isolated communities, right? Our LGBTQI um, population. I think they can find some support on there, right? Because there are groups and mm-hmm. they can be, you know, they can say, oh, I'm not the only one, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not the only one feeling this way. And so I think they, there are positive parts of it unfortunately they're also gonna you know get the negative right oh you're you're gay you're this right Mm -hmm. and and that's not helpful to anyone's growth and development but so i think it's a there's a balance right like everything in life yeah and and i yeah i want to add on there the internet is not reality and and that's because i mean also to go out into the community and, and, and 
I try to find more ways to go out and meet people face to face because I think totally. that's what we're missing entirely because chatting with someone or responding or reacting to something online is easy and there's a there there's a comfort level that you have through the screen that you don't have. You don't have face, to look them in the eye, right? You don't yeah. have to look them in the eye. So, I mean, uh, people ask me even to do podcasts remotely, and I don't want to. I, I think it's important to be in the same space and time and share that because that's authenticity. And I think that's another thing that's missing in a lot of people's lives is they don't have face-to-face interaction mm-hmm. very often. And, and, you know, the social network is to be social and right. to be social is to actually be in the same time space yeah as other there's people. no social definition of oh I'm, I'm i'm on a group chat right like right. it's supposed to be a community where you you know you grow together and you eat together and you mm-hmm. you know whatever it is you do together it, it doesn't involve a, a telephone but that's kind of what we've like warped into mm-hmm. right like at night i can just get on and yeah. group chat well and as a parent i've i've counsel my children to say you know do not say anything to anybody that you wouldn't say to their face or that you wouldn't be embarrassed to say in a group of people half of whom you may not know very well yeah and like I don't think they realize the consequences I mean you know they're young my oldest just finally hit teenage years right like they're kind of you know I don't want to say clueless but you know they're one they're kind of naive and two like just innocent right Mm -hmm. I mean they don't know what they don't know right and so I'm always harping, like, you don't know who's out there, number one, right? Mm -hmm. You shouldn't say things that, like, you know, give anybody an idea of where you live, where you are, if you're out of town, who you are, and, and like, be kind, right? Like, you don't know who's on the other end. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that that's the thing. They can destroy their lives in one post. And have no idea, right? And have yeah. no idea. And, like, the thought that, you know, oh, but it goes away. Well, it, it really doesn't go yeah. away, right? Someone can get it somewhere, right? No one understands the cloud. <laughs> there, yeah. What is the cloud? I'm not even sure. Well, <laughs> speaking of social connection and, and with your patients especially, what is about being a physician that, that brings joy and passion and and meaning in, in your life? Yeah, I I definitely wouldn't have it any other way. I absolutely, like, just love taking care of patients, Um, despite all the electronic (laughs) um, medical record snafus and and time commitments. It's it's all about that relationship. And I think that's why I went into primary care. You know, if I couldn't see you for months and years and take care of your family and deliver your your baby and, and, you know, take care of your grandkids, I mean, that's just really fun for me. I love learning about people's social relationships and job life and family life and I mean it's kind of like community but in my office which is Mm -hmm. super rewarding and enjoyable and and yeah it's hard right because if I have to tell you you have cancer or something terrible and I've taken care of you for 10 years or 20 years it's hard it's hard for all of us but I also think like how rewarding is it and like what a gift that I have that I can be there for you when you ring the bell at the cancer center, right? Which we, I just did with a patient last week. Awesome. Um, yeah, I I mean, that's what I'm here for. It's not that I, can, I can't, you know, amputate your leg and I can't do open heart surgery. And I might not know everything about the latest medication, but I can find it for you, right? Yeah. But it's just about having that connection and I will listen, right? That's mm-hmm. what I think I do best is I listen. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy. It's, it's really not because sometimes I want to be like, Oh my gosh, I've told you for five years just to get off the couch for five minutes and go walking and you haven't done it. Right. And you're mad that you're gaining weight and you want a pill, right? And mm-hmm. so it can definitely be frustrating, but I I think it's just too rewarding to, to give that up. 
Well, for those that are listening, ring the bell means you finished your chemo treatments. Is that yes, right? Yes, you also get to ring the bell when you finish your radiation treatment, depending okay. on what your um, treatment is. So ringing the bell is yep. a great thing. For, it's for very those, positive, yep. For those conquering their cancers. What do you think the biggest challenges facing primary care and family mm-hmm. medicine and community medicine? And Yeah, you know, we always like see numbers, right, of how many residents matched into primary care, where the primary care is going, and, and, and sometimes we're frightened and sometimes we're rejoicing. But um, I feel like, you know, that I almost feel like we've got, you know how we had the housing bubble? I feel like we almost have a medicine bubble right now. And I'm not an econ major, right? I, I'm a philosophy major. I don't do numbers. <laughs> so take this with a grain of salt. You know, we spend way too much on medicine and we don't have any good outcomes, right, to, to show. I mean, we have outcomes yeah. you know right we can do amazing on the surgeries, whole, right yeah. but like we're sick as a as a nation population yeah. um and so i just feel like eventually whatever bubble we're in is going to burst and i don't know if that's good or bad for for medicine but i think that it's hard in primary care to be in a class of med students and think like i'm going to sign up for one I'm not hurting for a paycheck, right? But if I look at my specialist colleagues, like mm-hmm. they are easily making double oh. what I make. And so if I'm a med student and I have $250,000 in debt mm-hmm. and I can go in and I have pretty good grades and I can go into a specialist mm-hmm. um, field or I can go into a primary care field, mm-hmm. why wouldn't I pick the one that I can make double yeah. Dermatology. The primary, right? Like, I mean, there's a ton <laughs> of specialists, right? And that's fine and good, but like, I don't know. I mean, and I'm not saying it's not that there's unfairness, but like, should someone make double what I make because they can do a special surgical procedure? I mean, maybe. And I'm not one who can argue really mm-hmm. anything because, again, I don't have the econ background. But I just feel like we are in a bubble. It can't, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And something's going to happen. And I hope for the better it's it's in favor of primary care because everybody needs a primary care physician, right? Mm-hmm. We have, just like we mentioned earlier, you're right, we have rural areas where there's no physician, and that is not good. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have good data that says if there's not a PCP in the town, their health care rates are worse, right? Mm-hmm. Higher infant mortality, more obesity, more diabetes. So, yeah, I'm not saying that everybody needs to be a primary care physician by any stretch of the mm-hmm. imagination, but we need more of us, and we we need to be compensated. If I can't mm-hmm. pay back my loans, why would I go into that field? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a huge problem for a lot of professions is this student debt thing. And, you know, I'm hearing bits and pieces of programs here and there about debt forgiveness if you go mm-hmm. into primary care and then if you go into rural medicine and those kind of things, which I think we need more of. Yeah, they're they, definitely like health core scholarships and debt forgiveness I think we all need some financial like assistance and guidance, and I think most schools have a financial aid advisor. But you know, just looking at myself, I couldn't, even though I kind of fit the picture for the forgiveness, because I ended up consolidating my loans way back when I I didn't fit mm-hmm. the bill to have them forgiven, and that's it's fine. Again, I'm not worried mm-hmm. about paying them off, but I'm literally going to retire and pay them off at the same year. Wow! <laughs> Which it feels. My husband likes to say I'm always like gray instead of his black and white, right? And I feel too much instead of think. But like, it doesn't feel good to know that my loans will be f- paid off when I retire, right? Like, yeah. you want to have them done. But, you know, it's okay. I'm fine with it. And, and then, Yeah. Well, it's a choice to go right. into <laughs> things. I mean, that's 
that, that's certainly a huge thing is like the cost of college for any profession is just we, we've got to weigh the the cost benefit of that and, and I think we we need to restructure some of that in medicine yeah. and healthcare as well now I, I started out by, by asking you mentioning that you're a mother and and you're very busy and and I've, I made the mistake of asking it that way because you know <laughs> I'll, I'll get accused of if it was a man you'd say how you know what's the secret to your success Success and and then for a woman it's like how do you balance how it do all? You do that? Yeah. But but and uh, not to say that working fathers aren't right stretched too. I mean it's across the board for sure. Yeah, it's just how we a- ask the question. Right. We're always like, wow, how do you do it being a you know a woman? There's always a little a, hidden bias, right? And I, I'm, I'm guilty of it as well. <laughs> and, but I wanted to you know segue into what advice I guess I was going to say barriers to women in medicine and healthcare, but what what advice would you give to someone who's considering pre-med or, mm-hmm. or out there already as a CNA or a CMA and it wants to, to, to further their healthcare profession? Yeah. And are specifically female? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be specifically female. I mean, yeah. I mean, I know that population better, right, since I am <laughs> one. <laughs> I would say go for it, right? I mean, if you are able to to do it in wherever you are in your life right now, like it's never going to be a better time than than right now, right? Because we're all getting older. We're all getting more issues, right? Our families are getting older. I mean, do it, right? Mm-hmm. Just go for it. And, and if you are told no, well, at least you know you tried. Like I always like think like, is there something that I will feel regret for not trying? And if that answer is yes, then you better try. Do it, right? <laughs> but I you know what? The fact of the matter is more women are graduating from med school right now than men. And I think that's awesome. Are there, quote unquote, barriers since, since you said the word barrier? Um, yeah. Women are med school deans. It's less than definitely less than a quarter. I think it's even less than 20 percent across the nation are females. I mean, we have one, which is wonderful. I think it's great that we finally have a female leader for our um, institution. But it's rare And so where are all these women who are graduating med school, where are they going? They're not going into the leadership position. And Mm -hmm. if they don't want that, well, that's fine. But if you do want it, why isn't that happening? And I think the answer is, is that we do tend to take on all of those traditionally female roles, right? We Mm -hmm. are. I mean, you know, even like in my own life, like I know when the birthday parties are, right? I know who needs to be at gymnastics when. I know when the soccer is and the taekwondo and I know who needs summer reading lists and whose books Mm -hmm. need to be. You know, like there's all these things where, and I'm not, my husband's a great husband. He's a great dad. He works full time, but that's just not something he enjoys doing. And Mm -hmm. so one of us has to do it, right? Well, I think it lands on me. (laughs) Well, isn't it a value decision or choice to make um, to do all those other things? I mean, because you value those things. And I think, you know, this kind of goes in society as a whole. Why are there more men CEOs? It's because they're crazy and they'll work 90 (laughs) hours a week and forgo all those other things that, you know, with their family and relationships and, and child rearing and all the things that that we rely on, on women to do in our lives. And I also think there's like some guilt. I just read something about, of all people, Jennifer Aniston. Someone asked her, like, do you feel guilty that you've never had kids and you've got two failed marriages? Well, she's okay with that. She wants to promote her career. Well, like there's this like inherent guilt that we put on women like, Oh my God! You got a uterus and you didn't use it. Well, that's okay. Yeah. Like, I mean, she could still adopt. She, it's not like she's eighty, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, physically she can't have kids anymore. But, you know, like, why are we doing that? 
it, if a man doesn't have kids, nobody thinks twice, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. But if a woman doesn't, we should be okay with it and not make her feel bad about it. Yeah, and I think that's changing. I mean, and I do. I think so too. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It is good to see. I've seen a lot of changes in the twelve years I've been here at this med center, and you know, we've gone from kind of the the boys' club to yes. really, really uh, transformational change, and and so it's a definitely a example of of the ceiling being broken and and those opportunities totally. being modeled to uh, to everyone and and that's encouraging to see because i think it will further explain to us what's really going on as far as is it was there systemic barriers or whether mm-hmm. it just choices that right. that we make to to value one thing over another and and i think that's great to see that hey it's you know Nothing can stop you if that's what you want, right? You know, and, and, but except again, yourself. <laughs> yeah, except yourself. And, and again, back to the training of of the MD and the residency and all the work and and blood, sweat, and tears that you have to put into it. I mean, I love that we have that. There is a strict hierarchy there that is competency based. That mm-hmm. I think is is really creates that reverence that we have for doctors in our society. And that's why everyone wants to see one when, they, <laughs> when they're feeling blue. Because <laughs> they want someone. Good job security. <laughs> yeah, they don't care if they're a good listener. Or, they just want to make sure the expert told them what they need to do. <laughs> what types of things do you do in your, in your uh, life that, that incorporates lifelong learning and continuing professional development? Because that's, that's our Ballywick at uh, Northwest AHEC. Yeah. And I know that... I'll plug your the uh, program or activity director for our mountain meeting yeah. at the Grove Park, which October twenty fifth through twenty seventh this it year. Is. Uh, so you, it's I'm, a really great program, by the way. Yeah, it is. And, and those grits. It's Asheville the, in the fall. <laughs> it's beautiful. We have a wonderful family buffet. We make it family oriented um, for the last day. That's right. And uh, and it's done by lunchtime every day. So if you are an avid golfer or runner or hiker and you want to do those mountains, that's right. It's right or spa. There's a spa. There's a spa, um, and they have cheese grits. Please look on the AHEC website for it. That's right. That's, that's, <laughs> that is a great program. I've had uh, that uh, was a the privilege shameless of, plug right there. Yeah, I know. I've had the privilege of being there um, a couple of years, and, and it is a wonderful program. We also have the Miller Beach Week, mm-hmm. which I'll plug real quick, July 29th through August 2nd. That's in Myrtle Beach, and that includes all three of the nurse program, the dentist, dental program, and the physician PA residence program, and that's... You can also find out, out about that at northwestahec.org. Yes. Um, but tell me about the things you do other than that that program that meet your needs for compliance, but also yeah. things you like to pursue. Yeah, absolutely. The nutrition thing was certainly a big part of um, the last couple of years of my life. And glad to say I, I completed that certification. The other things I do, I'm very active in the North Carolina Academy of Family Medicine. I'm on several of their committees and have put on two of their meetings, both their winter meeting and their, their summer meeting. And I mean, I, it's important. One is faculty, you know, it's kind of, it's we're, like it's inherent, right? We teach, so we have to, you know, stay up on, on the latest data. And that's good. I mean, I'm always telling the residents and students that I appreciate their questions, right? Because it forces me to learn. I mean, there's so much, right? And things are always changing. And so it's almost impossible to keep abreast of everything, but just kind of keep trying. I think I get more out of the the live conference events. Um, one, it's kind of nice to network and you know see what people are doing across the state, and and two, it's just kind of nice to get out of the office and be a student again. 
Yeah, I've, I've noticed that too. I've, I've done some surveys for our participants and you know, I, I was always thinking the trend in online was was going to keep continuing going up, but I think we've reached a plateau in the balance of that. I think people back to social connection and networking. They want to get out away from the office and see their colleagues, and you know, hopefully some nice location like That's Grove right. Park or or the beach or things. But like I that. do think there is a lot of online too, and I don't know. I'm the I'm a Gen Xer, right? And so I think that. Well, one, we're just stretched for time, but it, it seems like as we get more millennials in, in medicine that it tends to be more electronic-based mm-hmm. you know, learning. And, and our, our boards require live events, and so one, of, one thing is they have to you know, do it. We're forced to, <laughs> we're forced to see people. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it seems to me, and I'm glad that you said it's plateauing because obviously I haven't actually looked the numbers up, but it seems to me that more conferences are attended online just because of ease. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's, again, you don't have to travel and in the expense and night. the time, yeah, the the time time away, but I think there is, uh, you know, a need for that in-person live uh, things to get that networking. And I, I hope that continues for all the healthcare disciplines because I know the the lower you are on the totem pole, the more you have to take your own time and spend your own money on doing that. Right. So the online Especially the free stuff online, it, it fills that that need up. But I think um, we are figuring out ways to continue to provide those live events for those uh, lower credentials and and to provide them networking opportunities and, and just show that they're valued. And, and you know, in, in our facilities, a lot of people love coming to the Prairie Tower and yeah. you know just seeing the football. Who field doesn't like the football field? Right? I know, right? Just just looking at it, it's a neat neat thing. And yeah, we just did an interprofessional um, conference on health disparities just a few months ago, and it it was so wonderful. I had a couple of CMAs from my office there who I didn't know were attending, and it was just really nice to have. You know, I've never had a conference where you had from CMA to MDDO. Mm-hmm. It was just. And what a great topic, right? Mm-hmm. Social terms of health to just kind of all sit in a room together and let's talk about the problem mm-hmm. and what is your role in yeah. it, right? It was kind of refreshing to have something like that. Yeah, I think there's a push to get that interdisciplinary, interprofessional thing and social determinants is the topic to address in those, uh, you know, all the levels of, of health care. And that's something that's in our mission, uh, specifically in our mission for the year years coming um, is to interject some objective that discusses social determinants because it is I mean the the numbers are in and I think no one can argue that socioeconomic challenges affect healthcare outcomes and and to take those into consideration um, is is important so um, I kind of ask you the challenges Um, what what gives you uh, you know what are you most excited about what 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 allows you to sleep good at night (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> being worn out from working all day. <laughs> I sleep great. Um, wow, that's uh, that's a loaded question. I think just knowing that I've I've done what I what I feel is honest and and right for both the residents and patients, and you know maybe not screaming at my children at the end of the night <laughs> makes me sleep better. Because <laughs> um, you know after a whole long day, it's, it's kind of hard to keep that smile on when you just want to like sleep. Mm-hmm. I think just being true to yourself and true to your profession, true to your family. I mean, trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to? No, I I really appreciate this. This was really fun, and I, I'm honored that you asked me to do it. So, yeah. 
Well, I appreciate you coming, and we'll just end it there. Thank you so much. All right, you're welcome.